Hi, this is Brian Standing, host of the Monday 8 o'clock Buzz. Thanks so much for listening to the program. Hope you subscribe to our podcast. And if you really like what you're hearing, consider donating at wortfm.org. After issuing a December 22nd ruling declaring Wisconsin's legislative district maps unconstitutional, the Wisconsin Supreme Court now finds itself the arbiter of a half dozen replacement maps proposed by Governor Evers, academics, legislators, and activist law firms. To help them with this task, the court's liberal majority hired two consultant political scientists, Bernard Grofman of University of California, Irvine, and Jonathan Servas of Carnegie Mellon University. On February 1, the two consultants dismissed maps drawn by the state legislature and the conservative law firm Will as, quote, partisan gerrymanders not worthy of further consideration, unquote. Unsurprisingly, Republicans cried foul, claiming bias on the part of the two consultants. But all this begs the question, what makes for a good redistricting map? Here to help us with the nuts and bolts of map making is John D. Johnson, a research fellow in the Lubar Center for Public Policy at Marquette University. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Hey, thanks for having me. So what, has there ever been a consensus on what constitutes a fair map? I would say not in Wisconsin. If you look back at the history of redistricting here, it's been remarkably contentious as far back as I've been able to see, you know, the, the modern era of redistricting begins in the 1960s after the Baker versus Carr and some other U.S. Supreme Court decisions, which established the idea that you needed to have equal populations in districts, the one person, one vote rules. But even before that, it was a lot of court battles, a lot of bickering over what the standards ought to be. There was a time where Republicans thought that, you know, land ought to be factored into um the calculation of where districts should be, not just population. Uh, it, 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 it's hard to find a consensus at any point. Now, even in this sort of more modern era where there are some standards, at least uh, around this, that are articulated in statute and in case law, um, it's still not an easy task. I mean, the, even this concept of equal population um, can be really difficult to achieve. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Right. Equal equalizing populations across districts is um, the ostensibly the entire reason we do a redistricting cycle. And the standards for that vary. Uh, So the most commonly used way of measuring population equality is you find the range between the most populous district and the least populous district. And then you divide that range by the ideal district size, and we call that the population deviation. Um, Existing case law across the country kind of establishes that less than 5% population deviation for a redistricting plan is probably okay, and more than that is very suspicious. But most plans that I've seen in Wisconsin try to get a population deviation that's much smaller than that, less than 2% or even less than 1%. Um, In the congressional districts, they use an even stricter standard where they try to have like a deviation of not more than one person between the plans. But that's that's not necessary because the census data itself is not that accurate. So, you know, um, trying to be have extreme literal 
equal person fidelity to when your data source is not even that accurate is, I think, not a useful exercise. But that, you know, 1%, 2%, even up to 5% population deviation metric is what most places use. So let's back up a second. You talked about an ideal population for each district. And basically what we're doing there is we're taking the total population of the state and dividing it by the number of legislative districts. Is that right? That's that's right. And and how do we determine how many legislative districts there are? Yeah, so that's from in Wisconsin our state constitution, um, which we're allowed to have not more than ninety nine assembly districts, and then the Senate districts are each made up of three constituent assembly districts. So um, we talk about two different maps, you know, the Senate map and the assembly map, but the Senate map is a function of the assembly map in this way. Okay, so we've got our number and then we're, we're trying to hit these populations. Now, one of the things that's been happening in terms of population dy- dynamics in Wisconsin is that there's lots of rural areas that are sort of flat or even losing population. And then there's a couple of urban areas uh, in the state that are growing, Dane County being probably the most significant example. So how do those dynamics, uh, first off, how are they intended to be adjusted when you're looking at redistricting maps? And what has happened in the past that's kind of skewed that? Yeah, so you, you've, you know, identified the places where the populations need to be rebalanced the most. Um, and, you know, in, in a state like Wisconsin, the population changes aren't dramatic in most places. Dane County has seen pretty dramatic growth in most other places. It's been pretty flat. Um, so the, the I think it would be useful here to explain the Legos, the puzzle pieces that are used to assemble these districts, because there's been some contention over that over time. Um, So today we use census blocks. There's about 200,000 very small areas that the Census Bureau tabulates population in. Um, That's the smallest geography that the Census Bureau publishes any information about. Um, They can be as small as one sort of high-rise apartment building or, you know, perhaps several acres in a rural area in a sort of standard suburban or urban area. It might be one or two city blocks comprises a a census block. And uh, these are currently the small areas that are used to build um, a district. And you can you can make very small changes with them because so few people live in each one. Now, it used to be that districts had to be drawn with wards that were themselves created by local elections administrators. It's called municipal redistricting wards. Um, and there are only about 7,000, a little more, 7,200 wards drawn by local clerks in Wisconsin. And so back when that was the rule, before the 2011 cycle, I think that provided something of a constraint on gerrymandering because uh, there was just a less funny business you could get up to when you had these fewer units already drawn um, to meet sort of like local needs in terms of matching municipality boundaries, uh, being close to polling places, these kinds of issues. And so that old process we had, which I think it would be good to get back to of using local redistricting wards instead of census blocks to draw these districts with, uh, that process sort of 
automatically created some of the good government things we're looking for in drawing a new map. And what happened in 2011? The government passed a law saying that they could instead use census blocks to draw yes, their districts. And ignore the municipal wards, basically. In the, yes, in which are still drawn. They're just not used by most <laughs> map makers. So uh, now the state Supreme Court, in its ruling on December 22nd, uh, identified some other qualities as important. So obviously equal population is sort of the baseline, right? You got you to gotta get within a certain range of that, that target population. But then the court also talked about some other things. They talked about political neutrality, compactness, contiguity, and preserving communities of interest. Let's take these uh, one at a time if we can. So uh, political neutrality, what do they mean by that? They seem to have meant that they're looking for a map which will probably give a majority of the legislative seats to the party who receives the most votes. Um, and in order to do that in Wisconsin, you really have to mean to. If you just sort of draw a map using the other criteria, you will almost all of the time end up drawing a map that significantly advantages Republicans. So to achieve what their consultants refer to as majoritarian concordance, the idea that the party with the most votes gets the most seats, um, you have to have a you have to sort of keep party in mind as you draw the maps. Okay, so it's not saying ignore the party entirely when you're drawing the maps. In fact, you're actually keeping that in mind when you're looking at the overall uh, tally for the state. That is what the court requested. Yes. Okay. So compactness, what is compactness? Compactness is actually in the Constitution of Wisconsin. It says that districts should be as compact as practical, but it doesn't explain how to measure that. And there's a bunch of different ways you can measure that. One of the most common is take a district, draw the smallest circle that totally surrounds that district, and then divide the area of the district by the area of that bounding circle. You get a decimal between zero and one. The closer to one, the more compact it is. There's other formulas that are do similar things, but it's kind of a mathematical question. Um, but it's not pass-fail. You know, it's it's on a spectrum here. Some districts, Door County, is always going to be very uh, uncompact just because of the shape that it is. And and we've got some of these things that are almost in conflict with each other, and we'll talk about those in a second. So we talk about contiguity, and we talk about preserving communities of interest and compactness. Well, if you look at a map of municipal boundaries, you'll see that many uh, communities are scattered hither and yon and sometimes have little islands uh, based on how they were, you know, territories were annexed over the years. A lot of those boundaries don't seem to make a lot of sense. How do you balance the idea of compactness with contiguity and preserving whatever a community of interest is? Oh, yeah, this is this is such a great question because um Prior to that court decision in December, uh, the prevailing wisdom going back to court decision in the early 1990s was, okay, well, when you have a municipality that is itself not contiguous, you can keep all of the non-contiguous, the little municipal islands, so to speak, within one district, and it will sort of count as contiguous even though they aren't literally touching each other because we have this goal of keeping municipalities intact. Um, when the court decided that was okay in the early 90s, Democrats were in favor of that and Republicans were opposed to it, wanting a stricter definition of contiguity. 
the parties flipped in what they wanted in, in this uh, most recent case about that, and, and the court did in fact rule that the Constitution requires a strict definition of contiguity. So contiguity is really the only pass-fail uh, criteria that we have right now, the one that a plan either is or is not contiguous, and you can go out there and measure it in the real world. Um, and because we now have this strict definition of contiguity, it requires you, in some cases, to wind up splitting municipalities. Similarly, sometimes there's a trade-off between keeping a municipality intact, even when it is contiguous, and drawing the most compact map possible, because some municipalities have strange, irregular shapes. And so if, you're real, if your real goal is to keep that municipality in one district, you may end up drawing a less compact district than if you were comfortable with splitting it. And is there some, uh, in terms of the compactness versus splitting a municipality, is there some leeway there under the, the court decision? Or are they looking at a literal definition of compactness as well? There's, there's leeway because compactness can be measured different ways and also is a spectrum. There's no number at which you're like, this district is now compact. It's all relative. Districts are either more or less compact than another. And is there a definition of what a community of interest is? That's a peculiar phrase. No, not in not in sort of specific terms. I mean, there are there are groups that everyone agrees would be a community of interest, you know, a tribal nation, for example. Um, and one of the petitioners in this case took great care to uh, keep as many tribal nations as possible within single districts in Wisconsin. Some of the others, I think, didn't think about that. Um, so, you know, clearly a tribal nation. But what about, I don't know, um, school district? Else? You know, we could imagine, right, we could imagine all kinds of uh, uh, groups that might consider themselves a community of interest. There's many Amish communities in Wisconsin. I don't think they vote, so I guess it's a moot point. But uh, you could imagine sort of arguing about this endlessly. Uh, I mentioned this to my wife, and she was like, oh, watersheds. It should be by watershed. Well, it's <laughs> a good point. I don't think anybody's trying that, but it is a good point. And finally, what influence does the Federal Voting Rights Act have on the composition of districts? Yeah, so this is one of the few ways that the federal court system can get involved in a state legislative redistricting process is uh, ruling that they have used race or not used race in the sort of appropriate ways prescribed by the federal civil rights law. And in this case, all the plans basically left the city of Milwaukee districts where this federal law applies unchanged uh, as a way to just avoid letting the court, the federal courts get involved. All right. We've been speaking with political scientist John D. Johnson of Marquette University. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz.